Welcome to the Mormon Faircast. I'm Ned Skarsbrick and one of the many volunteers of Fair Mormon who help those with faith issues. These podcasts will be a series of nine episodes done by Karen Trifoletti from the I Believe podcast. Each episode deals with issues regarding how the Bible is a reliable source of truth. These podcasts are used by permission of Karen Trifoletti and the I Believe podcast group. And now, the authenticity of the Bible. I'm Andrew Hancock, producer of I Believe Podcasts, intended for all truth seekers, from agnostic and religiously unaffiliated to those intellectually struggling, or friends of other faiths seeking to know more about life's meaning, Christianity, or Christ's church. Your host is Karen Trifoletti, a self-identified, perfectly imperfect, but graced follower of Jesus Christ. For more podcasts or information, please visit our website at IWillievePodcast.com or subscribe on iTunes. Here's Karen. Okay, welcome back to this episode of I Believe Podcasts. I'm here, Karen Trifoletti, on Eight Points to Consider on the Authenticity of the Bible, Part 9 of 9 in the series with D.M. Johnson. Dave, welcome back to the cast. Hey, thanks. We are going to spend this cast time talking about the prophecies of Jesus. Uh, The scriptures, which consist of 66 books with over 40 authors, were recorded over a span of 1,500 years. They contain heavy prophetic threads. And if we think just about a few books, like Daniel, written 500 years before Christ, and the meticulous descriptions of the rise and fall of the empire of Alexander the Great, it just makes us marvel at the consistency of those prophecies. How about Zacharias, who in advance truly describes the crucifixion of Christ, and Isaiah, who writes of how Christ would suffer. Through these miraculous and historical writings, we really come to see the perfect person of Jesus Christ. So Dave, let's set the stage for reviewing and sorting through some of these prophecies. Thanks, Karen. I'm I'm glad to be here again and, and talk about this with you. We really, as we think about prophecies about the Messiah, need to categorize them. Uh, I think we have you know, a group of prophecies that in theory, uh, you could say, could be fulfilled by some kind of orchestration. But also, and, and this is the way that, that I like to look at it, is it shows a self-understanding of Jesus. It shows that, that he knew who he was. Uh, we also have some prophecies that would be very difficult uh, to orchestrate, and there's prophecies that literally would be impossible for somebody to orchestrate. And so these have a apologetic value. Uh, that is to say that you could show these, and it literally would be impossible uh, mathematically to happen just purely by chance. And so it's worth stating at the outset there that there's prophecies which are filled typologically in Christ, and there's other prophecies that are filled uniquely in Christ. I think those distinctions and categories are very helpful as we engage uh, this discussion. And I think one thing that we need to address maybe up front in this cast, Dave, is the concept of miracles in general. Um, This is really in part due to the fact that some of the prophecies involve the miracles of Jesus, and not to mention that there's a large group of people out there who simply dismiss prophecy or miracles as something that just can't happen. Um, Others look at miracle claims in the Bible and rule out Jesus or even the Bible altogether on that basis alone. Uh, a classic example is Thomas Jefferson, right, who famously cut out parts of the Bible which dealt with the miraculous and supernatural. You know, that's just something that, a place he wouldn't go. There's an intense discussion today regarding whether miracles occurred, and if they did, 
and if they're no longer existing, the whole discussion about sensationism versus continuing revelation. We're not here to talk about that, the second part of that anyway, but we do have to address the first, that there are those who reject the Bible or Jesus due to miracle claims. We even see this line of thinking as educators in our schools are taught a particular perspective of the Enlightenment and then are exposed to Dave Hume's writings or whatever. Dave, what are your thoughts on this before we actually dive into prophecies which deal with the miraculous? I always come back to, again, being intellectually consistent uh, with the different writings that we have. And so, for example, a lot of people don't know, most historians back at this time, uh, in this period of time, record miracles. Uh, Should we assume that they got nothing right and throw out everything they wrote? That would be silly. And so Tacitus and Suetonius, they, they talk about uh, miracles. Uh, Plutarch and Dio Cassius and, and Josephus uh, you know, talks about a, a person named Honi the Circle Drawer, also known as Onias. Uh, and in and, and here, you know, the stories got later uh, embellished uh, and things like that. We have uh, Hanin Bendosa. He's mentioned in the Talmud as, as someone doing miracles. And, and as I bring these up, I'm not trying to say, I just want everybody to be Uh, clear about this. I'm not trying to say that these other miraculous events even took place, or or for that matter, that no miracle, uh, none of the miracles took place. What I am trying to say is that these authors uh, record things said to be miraculous. And so most often these other claims do not have uh, early sources or eyewitness testimony with them. Uh, Vespasian is an example of an emperor who oversaw and approved all of his history, and, and he gave financial reward um, to those who, who uh, painted him in a good light, and he punished people that spoke out against him. And, and so I'm saying, what I'm trying to say as we look at this evidence is be consistent. You can't just throw out the New Testament because it has uh, a miracle in there. We've already shown that we have external sources that corroborate with the New Testament. And so we need to examine evidence. And with the miracles of Jesus, we do have early sources. We have multiple sources. We have sources from followers, uh, sources from skeptics, sources from enemies, and they all admit that he was doing uh, miracles, that he was a worker of mighty deeds, as, as some would call it. And so when people say, I don't believe in miracles, I sometimes like to say, hey, look around, you're, you're living in one. You, know? you, you look at things, and it's, it's pretty hard to see how all of this um, you know, is, is just by accident. And so a lot of people don't realize when they look at something um, you know, like, like the writings of David Hume, who you mentioned before, that there's, there is some uh, fallacies in that. You know, it doesn't, nowhere in, in what he states does he take into account the probability of all the evidence being just the way it is if the evidence, if that event hadn't taken place. So for those of you that listened to our, our resurrection cast, if you go back and look at that, what are the odds that all of these things would match up exactly this way if that hadn't taken place? What are the odds that six different news stations would broadcast the winner of the lottery the exact same way, even though it's highly improbable to win the lottery if that person hadn't, in fact, won the lottery? And so there's a lot of things like that that Hume's uh, theories don't really take into account. The other thing that's sometimes put forward is you know, the amount... Um, that you should believe something is proportionate to the frequency in which you see it. And so this is another fallacy out there um, you know, that's been there basically since David Hume. Uh, when the universe began, that happened once. Should we believe that it never 
happened because it only happened once. And so we'll post some articles where people can do some additional reading on this. We want to get um, in-depth with it. But there's so many logical reasons to believe in God. I am a huge fan of Frank Turek. I think he's a, a classical Christian apologist, and I like the way he delivers things. And I've heard him say before, you know what the hardest verse to believe in the whole Bible is? It's the very first verse. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, every other verse is at least possible. Yeah, I love that. And, yeah, and I'd also recommend if you're out there and you're thinking about miracles or you've thought, you know, I don't know if I can believe because of miracles, uh, Craig Keener, who is a highly acclaimed New Testament scholar, has put forth a two-volume work on miracles, and it is absolutely amazing. Ev highly evidential miracles. He goes through it in great detail. Thanks, Dave. Um, okay, so with that foundation laid, I think it would be good for us to start with some of the prophecies that some people say could have been orchestrated. You know, it's always struck me as interesting. On the one hand, people will say, you know, anybody could have ridden in town in a donkey, right? On a donkey. Um, well, this is true. I'm going to read you that <laughs> in a donkey. That makes me laugh. Sorry. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, okay, so with that foundation... I think it would be good for us to start with some of the prophecies that some people say could have been orchestrated. You know, this has always struck me as interesting. On the one hand, people will say, well, anybody could have ridden into town on a donkey, right? And, you know, while this is true, it sometimes makes people missing the whole thing from another significant angle. I mean, Jesus, first of all, was very familiar with the Old Testament prophecies and teachings, and it was him that said, you know, every jot and tittle would be fulfilled, right, in Matthew. So to me, when I look at this prophecy of Jesus riding into town on a donkey, it reminds me that Jesus had self-awareness. I mean, he knew who he was. He understood himself to be the Messiah. So I think we need to establish the fact that Jesus wasn't just a teacher. He was made, you know, laid later by others to be defined. He, it's important for people who study Jesus to look at his words, what he claimed, how he understood his divinity, and how he saw himself and what he actually declared of himself. I agree. It's important when you study the life of Jesus to take a look at how he viewed himself. And so remember C.S. Lewis famously said that he was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he was the Lord. That's powerful, and that's exactly right. So, you know, Jesus had predicted his death and resurrection. He knew when he came in on that donkey, and he was telling everybody plainly that he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. You know, another famous scene I think about is when Jesus is in the synagogue, he rises up to read from the scroll of Isaiah. He starts reading in what is now chapter 61 in our Bibles, and he reads this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End quote. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of everybody in the synagogue, as you remember, were fastened on him. You know, He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So the people then, as you remember, are furious because they know exactly what he was saying and who he was claiming to be. And they knew full well that the passage he just read was talking about the Messiah who was to come. So this is more evidence that Jesus knew who he was. He had a self-understanding of his divinity and his mission. And I guess the other passage that has always struck me as a very profound is when he's talking to the woman at the well. And I'll just quote the end of their conversation, where the woman says, 
I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. End quote. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And that's from John. This is a clear pronouncement, again, of Jesus stating who he was, showing his self-awareness. Yeah, I, I think two passages that I like on this subject are when he tells them uh, he is I am. And mm-hmm. so uh, I'll read an excerpt here from, from the Bible. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think, who do you, think you are? Jesus replied, If I glory myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said <clears throat> if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced and thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not fifty years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Verily, verily, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And so that's in the 8th chapter of John. And they knew uh, that he was stating that he was God who had spoken to Moses in the burning, in the burning bush. Uh, and they saw this as blasphemy. And so the most powerful thing in my mind is when he's uh, having also his conversation with Pilate. Uh, they, you know, it states in there, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming out of the clouds of heaven. And so here he's mixing um, you know, phrases from the 110th Psalm and from Daniel chapter 7. And, and this is the part where I look at, at what C.S. Lewis had said that I was talking about before, and you can rule out liar. Uh, liars make very poor mm. martyrs. You you don't mm-hmm. die for something uh, that you know is a lie. We, we have all kinds of crazy people in this world uh, we're in now, and you have people who they might die for something that's a lie that they think is true, but you don't die for something that you know to be false. And so Jesus uh, very clearly viewed himself as the Messiah. Exactly. It's so good. And we've established now with these numerous references that Jesus understood himself to be the Son of God. So let's dive into some of the different areas of prophecy and fulfillment. And I'd just like to remind our listeners that when we conducted our archaeology cast and talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls, we talked about how they gave us some empirical data that could be shown to predate Christ, which had the Old Testament prophecies prior to his lifetime. So we know they couldn't have been written after Jesus. Um, And we talked about prophecies that would be very difficult to orchestrate and others that would be impossible. Also, in our prior cast about undesigned coincidences, Dave mentioned that the data all taken together had a, quote, cumulative force. Lots of these prophecies seem to me the same way also. You know, if you look at one after another, after another, after another of things that would be extremely difficult to orchestrate, it seems to become ridiculous to insist that that they were orchestrated, especially when we add on the other prophecies that would be impossible to orchestrate and other overwhelming evidences, including those of the resurrection, which we also addressed a priori. So I think as we've shown already in this cast, things were easily orchestrated, simply show a conscious understanding on the part of Jesus as to who he was, what he needed to do. So all of that said, let's start off by discussing prophecies about the lineage and birth of Jesus Christ. 
Now this this is one of those areas that would have obviously been impossible to orchestrate. Your your ancestry uh, would be you know as well as where you would be born. And so if we look at a few passages, um, we'll look at a few of these and read. It says, "Therefore, Lord Himself will give you a sign." Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That's from Isaiah. Also, the prophet Micah uh, said that Jesus uh, would be born in Bethlehem. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who you are little to be among the clans of Judah, shall come forth from you for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. And so um, we see that there's a lot of other prophecies that surrounded his, his youth. Uh, we have the flight to Egypt, uh, and we see that fulfilled in, in Matthew. Um, we also have, um, when they departed, um, beheld an angel. A Lord appe- a, the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, uh, if you recall, and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for a child to destroy him. And so if you look at these different passages uh, on the one side in the Old Testament and their fulfillment in the New Testament, um, it's pretty hard to, to see how all of this could have been orchestrated. And that's what I love about reading Matthew. You, you can just about randomly put your finger down in Matthew hmm. and you won't be too far away that he'll say, and this was done so that the scripture may be fulfilled. And he, he brilliantly true. points that out. And so in terms of, of lineage, it had been prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. And so we have it saying, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute the justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And at this name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. And that's from from Jeremiah, and the term branch um, is often a correlation to uh, the Messiah, and then you'll sometimes hear um, people talk about the root or the stem of Jesse, that he would come from from David and from Jesse. Mm-hmm. And so we see Jesus referred to all over the place in the New Testament as son of David. And so in, in the New Testament, there was recognition that he was from that from that lineage. And so these are things that Jesus couldn't have his controlled his ancestry right. and his, you know, where he would be born. Mm-hmm, for sure. And since there are so many prophecies about Jesus, we could easily do another whole series of casts, right, Dave, on just addressing these. That's right. Um, but I do want to touch on some of the prophecies about his death and then get your thoughts as well, uh, Dave. So we have some prophecies that his hands and feet would be pierced in Zechariah and Psalms. Again, we'll post these on the site. Um, it's interesting that the psalmist traditionally attributed to David, he's talking about an aspect of the crucifixion, and crucifixion really wasn't even used for a few centuries after this prophecy. We also have details that he would be crucified with criminals in Isaiah 53, that he'd be given vinegar to drink, again in Psalms in 69. So all of these happened and were fulfilled and Isaiah is just so profound and just dead on with these prophecies of Jesus. I mean, how do you explain that other than that they were really prophetic? Um, I want to read the most passage of the most famous of all passages in terms of those that prophesy about the coming of the Messiah, found in Isaiah, <clears throat> and it reads as follows: Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. <clears throat> Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You may be familiar with that passage in Isaiah 53. This is amazing to just read and to see how it corresponds with exactly what took place with Jesus. I would recommend it that if you're listening to the podcast, that you go back and read those verses. Um, We just read two, but in that passage, it becomes very clear who Isaiah is talking about. And Dave? That's right. And, you know, I was reading a book just the other day, and the author in in that book, this scholar, was, was basically putting forward that he had... From his estimation, there were 127 personal messianic predictions that were found in 3,348 verses of the Old Testament. Wow. There's all mm-hmm. kinds of different uh, prophecy that's woven into the Old Testament. And there are just, again, you know, if we just summarize some of this stuff that can't be orchestrated, you, you can't orchestrate uh, where you're going to be born. You can't orchestrate who your ancestors are going to be or, or how you're going to die. I mean, aside from taking your own life, you can't decide how many's, somebody's going to put you to death, uh, that your bones wouldn't be broken, how you would be buried, um, that, you, that you'd be given vinegar to drink and that your hands and feet would be pierced, that, that soldiers uh, would gamble for your clothing. These are all things that you could never uh, orchestrate. The other thing, if we weave into here for a minute, we've talked about a few times in these casts, is that principle of embarrassment. You would never, in that society, in the first century, create a Messiah figure in that culture who would be hung up on a a tree and crucified. Uh, The Old Testament specifically said that cursed is one who is hung on a tree in Deuteronomy. And so, um, you know, they didn't get it. You read that, high, that passage that you read uh, in, in Isaiah, they thought he was being, you know, the bulk of the people thought he was being punished for his sin. Not everybody understood uh, what was really going on. And Christians, of course, now realize what that was meant. Uh, he was actually under the curse of our sin that he was overcoming. But you wouldn't make up that kind of Messiah figure if you were trying to get... Uh, converts. You wouldn't make up somebody exactly. who was going to be killed like that. They, they thought of a conquering Messiah, not a sacrificial Messiah. And so to me, uh, that kind of puts it beyond doubt. Here's some really powerful prophecies to think about as well. So we've got all these things that when you put together just could not have reasonably happened by chance. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, the Lord says that basically if the sin reaches a certain level, the temple would be destroyed and that people would be exiled and leave them in a state of judgment. Uh, then in, in Daniel 9, uh, there's a revelation about the temple being rebuilt, and, and the new temple uh, is destroyed, and a second temple uh, would be an everlasting atonement. Uh, it talks about the second temple and destroyed, and that it would be an everlasting atonement. Haggai uh, said the glory of the second temple would be greater than the first temple, and that the, the glory of God, that God would fill it with his glory. And so that's interesting if you, if you think about that. You know, we also have Malachi who says that the Lord would come to his temple. And so if you think about it for just a minute, this goes beyond just the fact that these prophecies are highly unlikely or mathematically impossible to happen. But this means that the atonement had to happen before the temple was destroyed. It's basically those verses that we've read add up to that. That there would be a second temple 
that the that its glory would be greater than the first temple. People look at that and say, well, how could that be? It's because the Messiah himself stood in that temple. That's why there was a greater glory there. And so if you think about it, it all of these things happened. The Messiah had to come before 70 CE. This means that if Jesus isn't the Jewish Messiah, nobody is. He's the only candidate that fits the profile within the deadline and fulfills all these prophecies. And it's just so interesting to me. Here's something that I've just found fascinating. Even the rabbinic tradition that's preserved in the Talmud says on the Day of Atonement, there were three different signs that the animal sacrifice the high priest would offer had been accepted by God, uh, you know, as an an atonement given to the nation. In the years when the sign would come up negative, everybody would have shame and they would mourn uh, to God because God hadn't accepted their sacrifice. Then it says, and this is the interesting part if you're listening to this, pay attention to this, that the last 40 years before the second temple was destroyed, the sign was negative every time. Mm. So again, if Jesus dies around 30 or 33, <clears throat> for all the years after that, uh, the sign came up that the sacrifice was not accepted. And, you know, why would this be? It would be because the atonement had been made uh, by Jesus, and just like the scriptures, the scriptures had prophesied. Right. And so when you look at it, it's unreasonable to postulate that this all could have happened just by chance. And as we brought up just in passing in the overview cast, uh, Dr. Peter Stoner, he was, a, he was a professor of mathematics. He looked at this just from the, the perspective of mathematical probability and took just a few of these prophecies and was able to show that it really equates to a statistical impossibility that this could have all happened just by chance. Mm. Overwhelming evidence, and there's so many lines that we could continue to discuss, uh, Dave. I want to emphasize that while evidence should never replace our faith, and that we do really need to directly inquire of God as we read the scriptures ourselves, it's important nonetheless for us to be armed with information and knowledge that really shows that our faith is rational. It's so important. If you're a believer in the Bible, I would echo what Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15. Always be ready to have a reason for the hope that's in you. If you're on the fence or skeptical of these things, I'm so glad that you've joined us. I would love to hear from you. Dave would love to hear from you. We would encourage you to consider the evidence that has been put forth in this cast series. I want to just summarize at a very high level just what we've talked about. We've talked about how these things are true. The Bible is corroborated by extra-biblical non-Christian sources that give us facts that are congruent with the New Testament storyline. We have over 120 facts about Jesus outside the New Testament. The Bible is the most attested book from antiquity with over 2.6 million pages of hand-copied text before the printing press. Within the Bible, there are numerous events, societies, cultures, and individuals which are attested to by archaeology and that corroborate the Bible. The Bible stands up to critical methods applied to the text of antiquity as well as any other book. Moreover, we showed how the Gospels have been shown to be based on eyewitness testimony by methods to establish authorship. We reviewed facts commonly accepted by even the most critical of scholars, which are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We also looked at coincidences from individual authors that couldn't have been designed, which support those accounts. We have shown that the prophecies about Jesus, which were fulfilled by him, could not have reasonably been fulfilled 
in or by any other person. I want to really thank our special guest and author, G.M. Johnson, for being here with us. I want to also witness to you listeners that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah that was predicted would come. I hope as you contemplate these evidences, you will come to the realization through study and prayer that this faith is based on evidence. Thank you for joining us on I Believe Podcast. God bless you in your journey. Thanks, Dave. Thank, thank you. Thank you for listening to I Believe, Expressions of Faith, with host Karen Trifoletti. For the video of this podcast, visit our website at ibelievepodcast.com. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ibelievepodcast. Follow us on Twitter or give us a call at 185-KNOW-GOD-1 with your sincere questions. Karen would love to hear from you. If you like this podcast, you can help support it by subscribing to it in iTunes or writing a review. Post a link on your blog or Facebook page. As always, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast may not represent those of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or that of Fair Mormon. Thanks for listening.